Good morning, St. Luke's. It's so very good to see you. Thank you very much for joining us on this very important Sunday, uh, the Sunday right after the presidential election. Uh, during this videotaping right now, we do not have a declared uh, winner, but we certainly know what the contours are and can pretty much extrapolate where we're going. Nevertheless, I want to have a conversation at this point about where are we now? What's going on in our country? And I wanted to have this conversation and a series of conversations with national leaders, and I couldn't think of anyone more insightful and brilliant than Cynthia Tucker. She is someone I have admired from afar. And then when I became the interim rector at St. Luke's, she, after a long period of time as a member, had moved back to her home in, in Alabama. And I have friends who have friends and they hooked me up with Cynthia Tucker. Let me introduce, uh, most people at St. Luke's know who she is, but let me introduce uh, just some of her accomplishments and some of her vocational journey. Uh, she's a native of Alabama. She now lives there again with her young uh, daughter. However, for a long period of time, she was an Atlantan she also was the head of the editorial board for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She won the Pulitzer Prize in 2007, and she now has a weekly column syndicated in newspapers around the country. Her focus has, for a long period of time, been the political and the cultural issues of income inequality, social justice, reform of public schools, and as someone who's observed her, a lot of other very relevant issues. I cannot wait for this conversation. Now, she has been a visiting professor of journalism at the University of Georgia, Grady School of Journalism. She is now a journalist in residence at the University of Southern Alabama. And uh, in addition to her Pulitzer Prize, she has had, she's received many awards, including being, um, inducted into the Alabama Academy. Um, uh, so I am really, really very, very excited about this. Cynthia Tucker, welcome. Thank you, Ed. This is so very exciting. So the, the big question for me is, where are we? And I think it, so many things have really shown themselves, some realities have shown themselves to us in this election, would you just take a few minutes to just enumerate all of the things you noticed from the beginning of uh, the reports of that day, election day, up until now, please? Well, let me just um, talk about the mood um, I was in. Um, and uh, talking about Tuesday night, uh, reminds me of an evening four years ago, I spent um, uh, at the home of some of your good members with some other um, St. Luke's members, Jane and Bob, always have a, an election eve party. And uh, Jane was really worried about the outcome. I wasn't 
because I believed the polls. Mm. Tuesday night uh, found me in a very similar place. But I have to tell you, I went to bed maybe around uh, 12.30 my time, central time, about 1.30 your time, still pretty confident. Uh, that this blue wave would materialize and that there would be a clear repudiation of Trump and Trumpism. Not just Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is one actor. Um, but what he stands for, the movement that he has brought to the fore, which has been decades in the making, by the way, is what I was hoping to see a clear repudiation of. I think it's pretty clear that didn't happen. Uh, so uh, throughout Wednesday, I was forced to come to grips with what I was noticing. And what I noticed was that the um, election of 2020 was just a reprise of the election of 2016. Um, the results at the top of the ticket will probably be a little different. I think it is safe to say at this point that Joe Biden will most likely become the next president of the United States. And I think I have to also take a moment to point out before I get into all of my worries and all of my fears and all of my dismay, I think I should take a moment to point out that that means that Senator Kamala Harris of California will become the first woman vice president in the history of the nation. That's huge. Uh, she will be second in succession. And she is a woman of African and South Asian heritage. That is a big deal. I have worked very hard over the course of yesterday to be more excited about and I think she will have a substantial portfolio. I think that's the reason she was chosen because she's clearly highly qualified. And I think as Joe Biden himself was trusted as vice president with a substantial portfolio, so she will be as well. What else did I notice? I noticed that despite what we've seen over the last four years, half of the country wanted to give Donald Trump another four years. I quite frankly am flat astounded by that. That after everything we've seen, you know, some of the things we've seen from him are abstract from many voters. He's a would-be dictator. He's corrupt. He's lawless. Uh, he has no respect for democratic traditions. He kept calling for locking up his political rivals. Um, he tells so many lies that the fact checkers couldn't keep up with him. One fact checker compared himself to uh, Lucille Ball in that wonderful I Love Lucy where she's trying to keep up at the chocolate factory. But those things quite frankly are abstract for many voters. What isn't abstract is the coronavirus pandemic, uh, wherein more than 230,000 Americans have lost their lives. 
and we are now at more than 100,000 cases a day. Uh, he has talked about firing Dr. Fauci. He has flouted public health officials and their recommendations. He has mocked those who wear masks. I don't think for one moment that a different president would have saved all 230,000 Americans, but I think we could have cut, cut that number at least in half if we had had an, a president who was willing to pay attention um, to public health recommendations. And that's a real thing in the lived experiences of many Americans. Yet half of us wanted to send him back for another four years. In fact, Donald Trump got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. I find that quite frankly, astounding. And there's one more thing that I need to say, I need to get off my chest before I let you ask a question. And that is that the vast majority of his enablers in the Senate are back. They paid absolutely no price for failing to stand up to him when he was coddling white supremacists, when he was talking about locking up Hillary Clinton and firing Dr. Fauci. Uh, even now, when he is talking about, um, when he's trampling voters' trust in the democratic process by claiming that the vote counting is fraudulent, few Republicans have said anything but they paid no price. And um, Ed, I would be, it would be understatement for me to say, I find that disheartening. I'm taking it all in. Uh, for you to catalog and audit the list <laughs> in the way you have, truly, truly, truly is breathtaking. And I, I had some fear that we were having the phenomenon of the frog being boiled alive, mm. gradual turn up. But when you put it all together like that, thank you, Cynthia. I mean, that's why you're such a powerful journalist. So I'm really, really grateful. Now, as more um, ideas, things, and notable moments come up, let's just you know, mark them. But now let's go a little deeper. Um, and, and I want to say a word about the richness of that word deeper for me right now. So um, Brian Stevenson had an amazing interview in The New Yorker about three months ago. Well, actually, it was, well, yeah, more than now. It was right after George Floyd's murder. Mm -hmm. And our protests came out, the, the real beautiful, sacred, sacramental protests will bracket all of the <laughs> anarchy for, for right now. <clears throat> and he gave an interview saying, these protests are really important. They're absolutely essential. And 
the work is even deeper than the protests. And I thought, wow. So I'll take just a second to talk about a little journey I've been on. So soon after that, uh, my forum guest was Dr. Beverly Tatum, Spelman, mm. President mm -hmm. Emerita. And I asked her, uh, I, I just recounted that. And I said, what is the deeper work? Well, she had a list and we can visit her list in a few minutes. Um, because I want to go to your list uh, before, I, before I talk about anybody else's. But I have asked the same question of Raphael Bostic, the same question of, of many other form. Um, it is really important for us to note, as I referred to them, the audit of what you just gave of the last four years. I think it's crucial for you to talk about Trumpism and not um, do what I think would be superficial thinking and think this is about one person. Yeah. We've got a, we've got a phenomenon going on in the United States of America. Um, what is the deep meaning, Cynthia, of everything you mentioned? Well, one of the things that, um, some pollsters and analysts now believe, I said earlier, uh, that Trump received more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. Um, it is difficult for even pollsters and analysts who research this to know exactly who's voting and uh, uh, who are they voting for. And certainly harder to know why they're voting. But many analysts believe that Trump has brought to the polls people who have been indifferent voters in the past or who never voted before at all. Um, so I think we need to keep that in mind. He is stirring something in them that a more conventional um, candidate like uh, John McCain or Mitt Romney did not stir. So I think that for uh, all of us, but certainly for the Re Republicans, there needs to be some rethinking about this notion that voters are drawn to you because of your uh, views on fiscal conservatism or less government. Um, there is nothing in Trump's presidency that suggests that he, he certainly had no love for um, fiscal conservatism. In fact, he threw aside several of the principles that the Republican Party had been known for for generations. So um, let me go back to Obama's presidency which I think many of us greeted as a very hopeful sign in the corner uh, that we were in a new place. Um, we were uh, advancing toward full equality for all citizens. I certainly never thought we were in a post-racial era, but I did think we were in a different era. But I was living in Washington 
uh, the newspaper sent me to Washington to write about the Obama presidency. So I covered the Tea Party. And while most analysts insisted that the Tea Party was all about fiscal conservatism and less government, that's not what I saw and heard covering their rallies. The racism in their slogans, in the banners they held aloft was breathtaking. On the day that Congress finally passed the Affordable Care Act, the racism was breathtaking. Um, I was covering uh, the Georgia delegation, including the late great John Lewis. He had been getting hateful mail, uh, racist mail about the Affordable Care Act for months. So it was pretty clear to me what we were seeing in the Tea Party was not so much a concern about um, economics, fiscal conservatism, but something else altogether. So I think if we go deeper, um, I think that this is about more than race, quite frankly. I think that uh, this is a broad cultural phenomenon Race plays a huge part in it. And I do wanna go back and talk about the criminal justice system. Race pays, plays a huge part in this, uh, but as I put it, and I, you know, I hope this doesn't seem too harsh and heaven knows I, I could be overstating it. I um, hope that I am, but I think that half of America isn't happy with the 21st century. Mm. Um, I think that half of America is upset with modernity. I don't think they like, um, they certainly uh, were unhappy with having a black president. Heaven help us with a woman of color um, as vice president, but it's certainly more than that. They're distressed by gay marriage. Uh, they're distressed by what they see in their television shows. Uh, you know, Hollywood is often out there um, breaking cultural barriers. So when they turn on television in the evening, they see uh, gay couples being affectionate, kissing. Uh, they may see, depending on the show, transgender actors they're very unhappy about that. They see biracial couples uh, advertising cereal and their little uh, light-skinned, kinky-haired children. They're unhappy about that. Uh, and they're certainly unhappy about broader demographics, uh, uh, demographic changes which suggest to them that's the future. And let me end on this note. Years ago, it might have been 20 years ago, Ed, that I heard this, but this has stuck in my mind because I think it explains a lot that we're seeing now. I was editorial page editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, 
running a left of center editorial page in a right of center state. So it goes without saying that many of our readers were very unhappy, some of them quite angry with the things they saw in the editorial pages. Lots of those readers still picked up the phone to call to state their unhappiness. And I tried to answer as many of those calls as I could. I wanted to hear what our readers were thinking. So one day, again, about 20 years ago, I got a call from a gentleman and I can't even remember the particular um, editorial or column he was unhappy about. But he sounded uh, white and rural. I didn't ask him those things. That was my assumption. But whatever it was he was unhappy about, he started you know, in very angry and I tried to calm him down to tell him you know, what we had meant. Please think about this being as polite as I could. And finally he calmed down a bit, but he finally said, what I'm hearing is everything I was taught as a child is wrong. And I thought, wow, I have never forgotten that. Because if he was an older white man who grew up in rural Georgia, he was probably taught that black people are second-class citizens, that a woman's place is in the home, and that homosexuality is an abomination. I think it is very difficult for most of us to have to hear that everything we were taught as children was wrong. Wow. I, the person I'm about to reference will be so tired of my using her um, <laughs> quote over and over again. Uh, it's, a, it's a person at St. Luke's and she is a learner. She's not, um, she's not a victim and she's not um, a victor. She's <laughs> a learner, which is where we all want to be. And she said, I am so angry that I'm having to unlearn so much that I was taught. So here she is a sister to that brother mm -hmm. and having a different experience uh, saying, I, I, I do want to unlearn it. And I'm really angry that I was mm -hmm. taught these horrible things. I thought that you would also, and let me just, and it may be that it's in your mind and you haven't given expression to it yet. Can you address the issue of, and I think maybe you are addressing the issue <laughs> as I'm thinking about it, the issue of belonging and identity and the issue of power. Can you talk about how they are working into this, what I call a toxic narrative that people were given in their culture. I mean, nobody sat us down and said, you know, necessarily, although some did, mm -hmm. those three things that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Black people are inferior or second class. Mm -hmm. Women have a place inside the home and gay folks are disordered. Mm -hmm. So how does that work with the whole business of that? This is my identity and also mm -hmm. this is my power. Well, I think that only recently 
have many white Americans who want to be learners thought about the fact that built into notions of American identity are certain assumptions. Now, if you grew up black in America or brown in America, you've thought about these assumptions a long time ago. And Ed, I'm old. I grew up under Jim Crow in Monroeville, Alabama. So I grew up in an age when I couldn't find makeup to match my skin. I grew up when there were no black women on the covers of fashion magazines. And, uh, you know, I have said to some of my white friends, and I only consider you a friend if you can hear me say this, um, and Jane Long is a very good friend because she would have said it before I could. <laughs> um, what do people mean when they say the girl next door? They mean a young white woman who's probably blonde. Um, and so all of the, this is what um, psychologists called implicit bias. These notions are built into our assumptions about what America should look like. Who is an American? Who represents America? Um, and there are many white Americans who think of themselves as liberal, who still carry those implicit biases. I would never say that they're racist. I don't think they are. I just think that these notions are built in. Let me give you an example. Uh, there was a reporter who loomed large on CNN for a long time. She had her own show. And quite frankly, I can't remember her name at the moment because I've gotten to the age that I'm no longer good with names. Uh, but she had been a former prosecutor in Fulton County. And she got a show that focused on abused women, especially murdered women. I don't think it comes as any surprise that 99.9% .9 of the women she focused on were white. There are black women and brown women who are tragically murdered, who go missing. They didn't get any attention on her show. But those notions are built into what we think of when we say somebody's American, when we think of who ought to be on the cover of a fashion magazine, or who, when we say the girl next door. Um, and uh, does that carry a power dynamic? Of course it does. I tell my students all the time that we have certain notions built into our heads about what a president or a governor should look like. We carry those notions without even thinking about it. Um, only recently have some corporations had to rethink 
what how they receive employees who wear natural hair or dreadlocks. Because again, the assumption has been professional hairstyles look like white people's hair. So all of those things are built in. You don't have to say to a child, um, fashion models should be blonde. Um, I have a cousin who said this to me a few years ago about one of her grandchildren then living in Birmingham. Um, her children had moved to Mountain Brook so that their child could attend one of the best school districts. Her grandchild was on the playground one day as a kindergartner. They were all, she and a group of little white girls were playing princess. They were taking turns being of uh, the princess. Well, uh, my cousin's grandchild wanted to be the princess. She said, it's my turn. And the little white girls looked at her and said, oh, you, you can't be the princess, you're black. I'm sure none of their parents ever told them that. This is just something they absorbed early on. Thank you. That just, I mean, you're in the category of people who talking that I want to just stop and breathe for a while, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I feel our time running away and I've got so many more questions. That was a really in-depth analysis of this whole business about identity and received narrative that comes in uh, that outflanks our defenses and it's in mm -hmm. our unconscious. Um, I want to ask you a question about power, specifically uh, about what Dr. King said on the steps of the Montgomery State House um, when they got there after walking from Selma. And he and other people have mentioned this, it's not just Dr. King, about when you are in a cultural position that may make you feel inferior about yourself as long as you can find someone who is in a worse place that you can identify that will keep your sense of power. Can you address that? Absolutely, and, and I'll be brief because I know you have other questions you wanna ask, but um, I rely on reading political scientists a lot and the research they do. Uh, because I'm an empiricist, I believe in data, and I want to be able to back up what I say, particularly when it may be controversial. And so one of the questions that has been asked, again, over decades now, this is not a new question, why is it that so many white working class voters would vote for people who don't seem to um, elevate their economic standing? And what political scientists have said is that um, the psychology of having somebody that you can look down on is apparently very important. And, and this is a human trait, by the way. 
this is not something that is just true of white people or, you know, just true of Hindus in, in India who may be give, uh, looking down on Muslims. This is a human trait that if you are struggling, especially if you are struggling, you know, I don't think Michael Bloomberg needs anybody to look down on. But if you are struggling, especially, um, it is important to your psychology, to your ego, to be able to have somebody to look down on. However, I am always remembered, uh, reminded of a very important quote, I think, from Booker T. Washington, who said, you can't keep somebody down in the ditch unless you stay down there with him. So I think it would be important for someone to come along and help remind uh, those voters of that that we would all be better off. I think Raphael Bostic said this um, when he talked to St. Luke's that we are keeping the economy smaller than it needs to be by keeping so many people on the margins. Everybody would be better off if we let more people in. Wow, powerful, powerful. Thank God we've got this on tape so I can go back and <laughs> I can't take notes fast enough. Uh, there are two more big questions, not that the next one is not a big question. I do want, since um, it, it, it gave me the idea that you are helping us cover so much that needs to be analyzed in our culture and our, in our politics, our national life. Before we go to the last two big questions, I do want to, to ask you to weigh in on the fact that I think in addition to my being stunned at how divided this election proves that we are because um, Donald Trump got even more votes mm -hmm. in this election than in, uh, when he ran against Hillary Clinton. That there are more African-American men and African-American women, a larger percentage, let's put it that way, uh, who voted for Trump. And I want not to be reductionistic in my own mm. thing about that. I am wanting, I, I want to be respectful of that. I also want to ask the question, the critical question that I, I need to carry all the time. And that is about internalized oppression. Can you address that phenomenon before we go to our last big questions? Absolutely. The first thing I'd like to say is that um, I need to see more research. Ah. Um, I referred to that earlier. I am taking um, that with a grain of salt. because ah. Much of it comes from exit polls. Ah. Uh, I don't think we know yet uh, what percentage of the black vote Trump got. Um, I think we do know that there is a gender gap um, among black voters, just as there is for uh, Latino voters and uh, Asian American voters and white voters. For whatever reason, uh, men are drawn more strongly to the Republican party than women. Um, I would love for some thoughtful political scientists to dig into that. And I'm sure they are particularly as it, 
applies to those of us who have historically been marginalized. And that's especially true than Trump's clear, explicit racism. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me as much as if more of them had voted for George W. Bush and Mitt Romney. Uh, but Donald Trump, uh, I'm blown away by that. But what we do know, though, I, I am pretty sure this is true, that a lot of Mexican-American voters along the Rio Grande voted for Donald Trump. I quite frankly, I'm stunned by that. Um, and I, I need some Mexican-American researchers to go in and talk to them and do the, some research and figure that out. It turns out, apparently, that immigration is not as big an issue for them as I would have assumed. Um, and that's even though Donald Trump's policies probably affected some members of their own extended families. Um, so I have been told that jobs in the economy are at the top of their agenda. Um, I understand that, but there is nothing that Joe, in Joe Biden's policies that would have adversely affected uh, their economic prospects. So I am very curious about that. And I wonder whether without, you know, I, I would hate to be the person who um, spread stereotypes, uh, but, but this comes from um, some thinking by people who are pretty profound on the subject, including a man that you've probably seen on TV and um, in the New York Times, his name is Jamel Bowie. Uh, he's frequently on um, television and he has a column in the Times. And he has talked about this matter of identity. And he says that when some immigrant groups come into the United States, the last thing they want to have happened to them is to be associated with the group at the bottom of the caste ladder. They don't wanna be among the untouchables. Um, and so they're going to do everything they can not to be associated with the untouchables. And you know, quite frankly, uh, that makes sense to me. <laughs> you know, I, I can understand why. If, if you look around you and you say, boy, those people get treated terribly. I don't want to be associated with them. I get that. Got it. Wow, so powerful, so powerful. So the last two big questions are these. And I'm going to go ahead and just ask you, put pose them both. So that if you want to separate them, fine or if you want to integrate your answer to them, fine. Where are we now? <laughs> and what's our task? 
You know, um, Ed, I was afraid you would ask me that. Um, and I have to tell you, I have run my mouth and run my mouth and run my mouth. And I have opinions about everything, but I'm not sure I have any answers for that. I am so depressed and demoralized at the moment because uh, we are cleaved in two as a nation. One of the things that I see happening again as it happens happened in 2016 is a lot of pundits are now, and these are usually pundits based in either New York or Boston or Washington, DC, saying, uh, we need to get to know the other America better. Excuse me? I live in the other America. Mm. I know, I grew up in the other America. Mm. I know the other America quite well. I can tell you this. I can tell you that I live in an overwhelmingly white, a middle-class neighborhood in Mobile, Alabama. My neighbors are all very friendly. Some are quite kind. And the neighborhood is still full of Trump pent signs. Um, I can tell you that a lot of the Trumpism unhappily is um, channeled through religious institutions here, uh, through churches that in in my view, and may the good Lord forgive me for saying this because I'm being judgmental, but in my view, turn the teachings of Jesus Christ upside down. Right. Um, but the other thing that happens in the other America is that people are fed a steady diet of disinformation. Fox News. I have heard from my, some of my college students in the classroom things that are simply blatantly untrue. I do everything that I can to steer them to uh, reliable mainstream sources of information, but they believe things that are simply not true. So I don't know, quite frankly, how we get beyond this. But I will go back to something that um, I have said before, that I think the work starts in small groups. Um, I think that as much as any of us can get outside our comfort zones, and I don't assign myself that task, Ed, because I live outside my comfort zone <laughs> here in Mobile, Alabama. Um, but as much as we can get outside our comfort zone and get to know people whose views are very different from our own, um, I think that's where the work starts. You know, my mother uh, was and is. My mother is still in Monroeville, Alabama, and she remains a major influence in my life. And she once told me a, a story that has stuck with me uh, from childhood and that she knew a couple, white couple, in Monroeville, Alabama. Um, the uh, woman had grown up Baptist, but the man was Catholic. 
and the woman um, changed her church, her faith to be with her husband. But she asked her husband how he came to be Catholic. Uh, and he said uh, his family has started out Protestant in whatever state, Pennsylvania maybe, he had grown up in. But during the time of some epidemic, it was the Catholic priest who came to his house um, when the Protestant clerics were too afraid of getting sick. And he said, I thought that what they were doing showed me what kind of people they were. And so, Ed, if I'm not mistaken, there is something in the New Testament about by their fruits you shall know them. <laughs> so I think if we're out there doing the work, showing who we are, um, that speaks volumes. You have brought us to a very spiritual moment in, in my, my way of estimating light and that is to talk about the by their fruits you shall know them at sayings saying of jesus and saint paul says it in galatians 5 also and that requires soul searching about on what terms am i doing my work both in my workplace in my relationships and in my family. Also uh, in my humanitarian work and my outreach work. Am I seeing people as other or am I seeing people as myself, which is what Jesus called us to see. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's deep interior spiritual work. I think Christianity, particularly uh, most of white Christianity, has been slaveholder Christianity, which is a total distortion of Jesus. And it is about um, there being a hierarchy of human value and a hyper-individualistic approach rather than a communitarian approach to life. We need to go through a lot of conversion. Um, and that's, an, that's a spiritual um, job. That's a spiritual journey. I agree completely, Ed. But before I leave you, I want to bring it back around to myself. Good. Um, because again, um, my mom, um, who was my very first spiritual advisor, is still good about reminding me of this. Um, <laughs> I woke up so angry um, Wednesday morning. Um, that I had to pray about the way I see my neighbors and my struggle to see their humanity and to see Christ in them. And quite frankly, that's going to be an ongoing <laughs> struggle for me. It is. It is. I'm so grateful for your saying that I, I had a spiritual experience. I pray for an hour every morning and I had an experience of really being taken to a meeting with grace. I was, I was connected with grace in that moment. And throughout the day, I kept hearing this still small voice say, 
stay in the meeting, Ed. Stay <laughs> in the meeting. No matter how frustrated or annoyed you get today, stay in mm -hmm. the meeting. Cynthia Tucker, you have enriched and stirred and illuminated, and I think transformed our lives by your candor and profound insight and your willingness to uh, admit to your anger and your frustration, <laughs> uh, the knowledge you do have, and also the places where you don't have answers. Um, I hope that you and I can have some more conversations. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. It's delightful to be with my St. Luke's family, even if it's virtually. Oh, very, very good. <laughs> So thank you all for joining us. We will continue this conversation about where we are. Uh, so very, very glad to have you all with us. Uh, have a great Sunday.